with, with you. We started last week in the Gospel of Matthew. I mentioned to you that our series is going to be uh, the first four chapters from the Gospel of Matthew as we uh, kick off this new year, our theme, Journeying with Jesus, as we're going to look at his life and look at his teachings and use that as a catalyst for strengthening our faith as we uh, come into 2022 uh, with hopefully a renewed hope and, and vigor of serving uh, and, and worshiping God. Uh, last week, we looked at that genealogy of Jesus, and we noted in that uh, genealogy, there are a lot of scandals recorded in those names. There's a, a lot of, quote, bad people who did bad things uh, that are listed in the genealogy of Jesus. And uh, this first chapter is very much about the scandalous beginning of Jesus. And it is interesting as Matthew opens here in the narrative from uh, Matthew 1 verses 18 through 25, that you see that it says this is how the birth of Jesus took place. And then it goes about proceeding to tell us an awful lot of things about Joseph. And I think it's interesting that Luke's perspective gives us everything that was happening to Mary and the angel coming to her and what Mary was thinking. And Matthew's perspective is what Joseph was thinking and what he was experiencing and the angel coming to him. And so we're going to look at this beginning point in regards to Joseph, as well as this account in regards to uh, the beginning of Jesus and the scandal that surrounds all of this. You're, You're told in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1, that Mary is betrothed to Joseph. We don't have an equivalent of that in our society today. Uh, Engagement is not the same thing because people break off engagements all the time. But the idea is there is that you are engaged to be married, but it was permanent when you went into that betrothal. That meant If for some reason you were going to break the betrothal, it caused, required a divorce. It was legally binding. So you were as good as married, but not yet married. How about that? So you're, you're, you're as good as married that you were legally bound together, but you are not married yet. So you don't have sexual union yet. You're not living together yet. You are not in marriage quite yet. And that's what sets up the problem that comes out here is that they are betrothed. They are legally bound together. But then you can just imagine the scene as verse 18 continues that Mary is found to be with child before they had come together. Have you ever thought about what that conversation looked like? Here comes Mary to Joseph. Mary. Mary says to Joseph, I want you to know something that I'm pregnant, but I did not cheat on you. I mean, how are you going to take that information? (laughs) Really? (laughs) Uh, That's quite a thing to be brought to and think, okay, well, what are you going to do with it? And that puts Joseph in this dilemma. And that's what verse 19 is. You see Joseph trying to determine now what he's going to do with this circumstance. And the dilemma is not easy. It is not a simple solution for Joseph as to what he's supposed to do. Because if he stays with her, then all of the implications are is that he sinned. 
If you stay with Mary, then Joseph, you obviously sinned. And that's why Mary's pregnant. And all of the scorn and all of the problems that would come from Jewish society, as well as it is a breaking of the law of Moses, all come upon Joseph's head. And the text makes it clear to us that Joseph is a righteous man. He is a just man, as verse 19 says. The only other option then is that you divorce her for infidelity. She cheated. And that's what it says. Verse 20 says he considered these things. He's working these things out. What am I going to do with this information? And it's important to get a sense of what the law said about these things as he's considering his options. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 23. If there is a betrothed virgin. There's our circumstance. And a man meets her in the city and he lies with her. Then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city. You shall stone them to death with stone. The the young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city. And the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. A little bit earlier in that chapter, the same parameters were given. For if you had a wife and you were married and you found her not to be a virgin at marriage, then the very same thing was given. Stoning was given for that outcome. So here's Joseph. She says, I'm pregnant, but trust me, I have not been unfaithful to you in the slightest. What are you going to do? This is the troublesome start that he begins with. But I think what is interesting as well is what the text tells us about Joseph. I mentioned it, but notice it there in verse 19. It says, Joseph being a righteous or a just man, and he is unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. It is interesting that he makes a decision here that he will go ahead and divorce her. So he obviously believes this is infidelity and is going to follow through with what the law says. But he's unwilling to put her to shame because all that Joseph has to do is take Mary to the elders of the city, like Deuteronomy says, and say, see, that's not mine. And that's the end of that. Public shame and scorn, perhaps even following through with what Deuteronomy 22 says to do. And yet it says he's not going to make a public display out of her. He's not going to have her publicly condemned, not going to make this big disgrace uh, before all the people, not going to do that kind of thing, even though she could have been put on display as unfaithful under the law. He's a righteous man. And he doesn't want to do that to her. And I wanted just to stop and think about Joseph's righteousness there for a minute. Because how many married people would publicly shame their spouse over things far less than this? How many spouses would want to try to drag their spouse's name through the mud for something far smaller than this? This is a big deal. Looks like she's been unfaithful. 
And yet, even at that, though he believes he has been deeply wronged by her, he is going to be a righteous man. He is going to uphold righteousness at this moment. And I want you to consider he is putting her above himself in the way he's going about this. I will just divorce her quietly. I'm not going to make a big scene about this. Not going to make a big public thing. Not going to have a stoning. We're not going to have any of that happen. He's going to do what is right for himself as well as right by her according to the law. And I want you to think about what you have happening then in verse 20. Because I don't know that we always get a sense of how this all played out. I think we often just kind of think because it's only in a sentence that everything took place in a matter of 10 seconds. But you notice that verse 20 says, as he's thinking about these things, he's weighing his options. He's come to the determination that he's going to put her away, but he's going to do it in a way so that it's not a public disgrace. It's not a big display. It's not this grand shame. But I want you to think about how God had tested Joseph's faith in this moment. Because you know what could have happened was as soon as the angel had told Mary, it's the Holy Spirit that you're having a child, that angel could have gone to Joseph and said, now the next time you see Mary, it's okay because it's by the Holy Spirit and so you don't need to worry about it. But that's not what happens. Here he is weighing options. You know, do, am I going to divorce her or am I not going to divorce her? Okay, I guess I'm going to have to go ahead and put her away. His faith is being tested in the moment. And once he determines that he is going to put her away quietly, then we're told in verse 20, the angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, as he's taking these steps, God comes in and intervenes with his purposes and his plans and explains, here's what's going to happen. Life would be so much easier if at the beginning of any trial, God at the very start of it said, here's what's going on. <laughs> oh, okay, I got it. No, no, it's always, you're going to go through the difficulty. I'm not going to explain it to you up front. You read this and go, God, you could have saved Joseph an awful lot of heartache if you'd been just right at the front of this. And no, he's being tormented and thinking and considering and working through it all and finally makes his decision. And then God goes, okay, wait. This is the Holy Spirit. She's telling, she is telling the truth. She hasn't been unfaithful, but all of this is ultimately from God. And I want you to think about the emphasis that's given to here in verse 20. Do not fear to take your to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And I mentioned this before, and I want to talk more about it in our lesson this morning. Why do we need a virgin birth? And why is it so important to underscore in the text that this is from the Holy Spirit? That's what I want to talk about, because that is the highlight of what this text is offering to us. This is a virgin birth. Why does that matter and why does it need to be from the Holy Spirit? Now, we mentioned in last week's lesson that and we made that our focal point last week, that the virgin birth represents to us that salvation has to come from outside of humanity. Nothing human is able to save. It's the story of Israel, the story of the scriptures 
Humans cannot save themselves. Our salvation must come from outside of ourselves. So we spent time with that. But let's press on with that idea because you'll notice this quotation then in explaining it in verses 20 through 23 in saying he's going to she's going to bear a son, call his name Jesus, save the world from from their sins, just like Isaiah the prophet had said Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why is this virgin birth so important that it sits here? And why do we need a Holy Spirit conception? The message of Isaiah 7 is really important. Don't have time to do all of Isaiah 7 with you. Wish I did. Isaiah 7's context in summary, though, is very important. In Isaiah 7, you're reading about a king in Judah whose name is Ahaz. He has a problem. His problem is that the northern nation Israel, as well as an outside nation Syria, have decided to ally together and are now attacking Judah. They've come to the border. They're winning the wars. They're attacking Judah. And now the king of of Judah, Ahaz, is really concerned that they are going to get wiped out by these two nations. And so the Lord sends Isaiah to King Ahaz with a message. And the message is really very simple. Don't be afraid of those two nations. They're not going to succeed. I'm going to deal with them. I'm going to destroy them. They're not going to be around much longer. And then God says, I want to prove it to you. Ahaz, ask for any sign and I'll give it to you. And King Ahaz is described as a wicked king. And yet he feigns some piety here and goes, oh, no, I would never put the Lord to the test. And I would always tell you, if God tells you to do something, just do it. God said, ask for a sign. And he doesn't ask for the sign. He goes, oh, no, I would never do such a thing. And so Isaiah says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And then this is the quotation. This is the sign that is given. What I want us to think about in these signs that are given is that when God does these special birth events as signs, they are always representing God's rule, God's victory, and God's deliverance for his people. The message to Ahaz is, you're going to be fine. God is going to rescue Judah. He's going to deal with those other two nations and you are going to succeed and your people will be delivered. When you have the uh, special birth events around Moses, why do we have that? Because God is going to deliver his people from the Egyptians and show his rule and show his victory over the nation of Egypt. When you have the special birth sequence about Samuel, All of that is to show God is going to give deliverance from the Philistines. And so God is showing his rule and his authority and his victory over nations. When you have the birth of Samson, another miraculous birth story sequence, the message again, God is going to give victory over the Philistines and God's rule and God's God's uh, uh, authority is going to be seen in all of these things. This event here is really interesting because you have a special birth sequence, a virgin birth. And the virgin birth signifies not that he's going to be victorious over the Philistines or over the Egyptians, but he's going to be victorious over sin 
and death and Satan, the greatest enemies that the people of God have. Whereas Moses and Samson and Samuel and the others all represent smaller enemies. This great final birth sequence shows God is going to deliver his people. And with this child, it will not just be a nation, but it will be the salvation of the world from all the enemies that would ever rise up against God and his people. That is why we have this special virgin birth sequence that's given to us why this is necessary. But let me push forward a little bit more. Why twice? It'd be conceived from the Holy Spirit. Verse 18 and verse 20. Why say, why does that matter? And here's why I'm asking that question. We have other opportunities of sequences like this. We've just talked about, we have a special birth with Moses. We have a miraculous birth with Samson. We have one with, with John regarding Mary and Elizabeth. Why does this have to be a conceiving by the Holy Spirit? Why not just wait until they get married? And then it'll be just like what you have with John and Elizabeth. Why have to have the scandal? Why have to have the questions? Why does it have to look like this? Why does it need to be that this child is a virgin birth that is conceived by the Holy Spirit? Well, I hope that in those of you who've been with me in all of our Holy Spirit studies have a sense of what the Holy Spirit represents in scriptures. But even if you forget, always go right back to the very beginning. You can go right back to the book of Genesis. And in Genesis 1, you have a creation that is dark and formless and void. And the very next line is this strange statement that the Spirit of God was now hovering over the face of the waters. And friends, what happens next after the Spirit goes over the face of the waters? There is new life, a new era, a new hope, and a whole new creation. That is always what the Spirit represents in Scripture, is that new life has come. It is a new creation. A new era is coming in. It is new hope for the people. That is always the imagery. The reason why the child must be born of the Holy Spirit is because with this child, it is going to be new life. With this child, a whole new era is coming in again. It will be with this child that it will be the final hope, a new hope for all people. And it will be then a new creation that is coming You need the Holy Spirit imagery here because it is signifying that with this child, everything is going to change. And friends, that's the essence of what verse 23 is trying to get at when it simply concludes, this is God with us. It's a new era. It's a new creation. It's a new hope. It's new life. 
It's everything that all the world needs and has been waiting for. And so the virgin birth then signifies that this is going to be the hope of all humanity, salvation outside of themselves, delivering the people from Satan's sin and death and conceived by the Holy Spirit means now life is finally on the scene. New creation has ultimately come. And that's then what follows next makes it really interesting because it now brings us back to Joseph with this new era. Now that light and life are coming into the dark and empty world, verse 24 tells us that Joseph awakes from sleep and he does as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Ever thought about that? So now he wakes up from the dream and the angel has come to him with this information. And I want you to consider that Joseph now obeys despite all of the scandal that that would carry. As I submit to you, the explanation is not going to sound really viable. Oh, no, she didn't cheat on me. It's from the Holy Spirit. (laughs) But that's what he's signing up for. And there's no avoiding the scandal because I want you to notice that verse 25 wants to highlight even though he takes her as his wife, they don't come together. This is not his child. And remember, the genealogy wanted to emphasize that to you. Verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, not Joseph fathered Jesus. The text is highlighting for us the scandal. He's not the father. By the way, that scandal kind of pops up a little bit in the scripture. You might remember Jesus is having an argument over being the father of the devil and being the the son of the devil and, and children of God. And one of these little lines comes out of the Pharisees when they say, well, we weren't born of sexual immorality. There is always a question mark that seems to hang over the circumstance, the scandal that happens with with Jesus and Joseph. Because Joseph is not going to go around saying, oh, no. And this is really belongs to me. No. And it is so interesting that the way the text is worded in verses 24 and 25 is not hurry up and and marry Mary so we can cover this up and nobody will know. No, I'm not going to even touch her until the child is born. The point is not to cover up, but to highlight the scandal of the beginnings of Jesus. Now, why is that so important? Let's come to an end with all of this. I would submit to you that we should expect a scandalous beginning with Jesus because the very purpose of Jesus coming is scandalous. His whole work is a scandalous work. The whole reason Jesus comes 
is that God wants to live with his people. In our study on Sunday night, as we've moved through the Old Testament, we have seen God desiring and determining to live with his people, but the people are sinful and he cannot be with his people. And so the temple is destroyed. Everything seems to be off. The people are sent into exile. God cannot be with his sinful people, but it's not that he cancels his plans. You know, God should look down after all of those hundreds of years of attempting to be with his people from the garden and being with them and they sin from being with from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and their sins to the tabernacle construction and the sins of Israel then and the golden calf. And then even when you come to Solomon and the temple construction and the sins of Israel again, at some point you would probably say, never mind, I can't be with these people. But God never cancels his plan. His purpose is that he is going to be with his people. You'll say it another way, a holy God, for some reason, still desires to live with sinful people. He doesn't look at it and go, never mind, you guys don't care. And here is the scandal of what God is doing. Is that here is a world that is worthy of wrath and worthy of death. And God chooses to come and save them. For one simple reason. He wants to be with them. That's it. He so wants to be with people, but he's so holy and we're so sinful. He can't be with us. So the only way for him to be with us is to go ahead and save us, to find a way to save us, to rescue us from our sins. Our logic would be cancel the plan. It doesn't make any sense. But God says, I want to be with my people. And I so desperately want to be with my people that I will come down and be with them. The story of Matthew 1 is really the story of us. Because we are the ones who deserve the public disgracing. We are the ones who should have the relationship severed. We should be the ones who are divorced and sent away for our infidelity. We are the ones who have sinned against God. But rather than God doing that, instead, he says, I'm going to bring you to me and I'm going to cleanse you and wash you. And I'm going to make you without spot and without blemish so that you can be my people. That's what I will do. I will clean you up and I will make you mine. And that's what the story is all about. The reason he comes. So that we can have new life. That we can have new hope. That we can enter into a new era. And be a new creation. If we will have faith that you see like Joseph. To do exactly what God has said to do. It is amazing. That God never cancels his plans for us, but keeps showing how desperately he wants to be with us. So much so that he will send his son, God, with us. Not to show how he can't be with us, but to die 
so that he can be with us. That's what the book of Matthew opens up with. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, it is shocking to consider how you are such a holy, righteous, pure God who cannot look upon evil, who does not dwell in darkness and cannot be with darkness at all. And yet you want to be with us. Lord, help us to understand how deep your love is for us. Help us to understand how desperately you desire to be with us. And Lord, help us to see the life you are trying to give us, the hope you are trying to give us, the transformation you are trying to give us. Help us to see all that you were trying to do as you expressed here in the very birth story about your son. And Lord, we pray that you would help us in our efforts to turn away from evil and to live courageously for you, to see the love that you have for us and to understand that we are unworthy of what you have given to us. We are unworthy of your son. We are unworthy of this victory. We are unworthy of eternal life. We are unworthy of our sins being forgiven. And Lord, we praise you and thank you that you love us so much and want to be with us so much that you want to do this for us and that you gave your son for us. Thank you for not only your holiness, but your deep desire to make us clean so that we could be with you. And so, Lord, we praise you and thank you. We give you all glory and honor. We pray for forgiveness for how often we make ourselves unclean. And we go back into the mud after you have cleansed us. So, Lord, thank you for forgiveness. And, Lord, we pray that we would be far greater servants ahead than we have in the past. And that we would live clean and holy lives, faithful to you, like we see your servant Joseph. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus this very morning to turn away from your sins and to see God's great plan for you from the very beginning was that you would come to him. That's how much he wants a relationship with you. It is a stunning thought that the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, wants to be with you. He wants to be with you. And everything that is written in this big old book is about how God wants to be with you. And everything he did was so that you could be with him. And we want you to do that. We want you to take advantage of the opportunity. Turn away from your sins. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins and follow him faithfully with the hope of eternal life. Won't you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?